Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Naturopathic Times podcast. If you are new to our show, this is an interview podcast that bridges the gap between naturopathic philosophy and common day practice. I am your host, Katerina Meister. And I'm your co-host, Stephanie Yacopedia. And as a final reminder, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share with someone you know. On to the show. Today's guest is a licensed naturopathic doctor who has focused her practice on toxic on the toxic trio, otherwise known as chronic EPV, mold exposure, and Lyme disease. Through her clinical experience, she has seen environmental toxins, viruses, stealth infections, chronic inflammation, and stress disrupt these pillars of health. She uses a complete holistic approach to tackle health conditions, no matter how simple or complex they may be. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Casey Holland. Thanks for having me, Katerina and Stephanie. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you yeah. for joining. Thank you so much for joining us again. And um, we have just been following your journey on social media and have been listening to other podcasts you have been in. And we would just love to tell our listeners a little bit about you and where you come from and, um, you know, a little background story on how you found naturopathic medicine. Yeah, well... Um, I always say that naturopathic medicine found me. Um, I was I was sick when I was young, and I had a lot of gastrointestinal health problems. And my mom had already relied heavily on naturopathic medicine because she was actually told that she wouldn't be able to have children. And hmm. so, after going to a naturopathic doctor, she got pregnant with me a few months later. Um, so she was already familiar and I was having, um, at around age 10 gastrointestinal problems, um, and anxiety. And I believe that conventional doctors were ready to put me on, um, some anti-anxiety meds. And they had even discussed doing some type of biopsy, um, Mm. on my gastrointestinal tract or something to see what was going on. And she took me to, um, a naturopathic doctor and I got so much better. Um, so much so that I didn't have food sensitivities or allergies anymore and started eating not very well (laughs) Um, (laughs) and paid for that later. But that was the kind of the start of it for me. Um, and in high school, I shadowed the same doctor that saw me when I was younger. Um, and just, continued to feel very passionate about having that be an option for everyone um, and understanding just really getting to the root cause of things. And uh, then here we are. Um, Really, it's kind of been something that I always learn more about. Um, I focus a lot on EBV because that's affected me. I focus on mold because that's affected me. And so in a lot of the things that I talk a lot about, it's just been through I feel like um, things that have happened that really are not not great that I can share with others to either avoid and also in sharing my healing story is a part of my healing because then that time frame when I was ill isn't for nothing. It's to help somebody else. Um, so yeah, I love naturopathic medicine and it's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember, honestly. Totally. I think Stephanie and I can both relate to your story and a lot of people in our profession can. And that's what we've seen through our podcast. And another part of of our podcast is just educating the public on the differences between conventional and naturopathic treatment options. And it seems like your mom kind of dealt with that with you and kind of was at a crossroads 
um, and then eventually found naturopathic medicine. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. And I definitely, I heard you mention root cause a couple times, and I really do feel like that's at the root of naturopathic medicine, really. Um, And these are really common exposures to EBV, mold, and other toxicities that you were talking about. What's your opinion on, um, you know, the public's understanding? I guess I just would, I'm just curious on what you think of what the public may know about our medicine and what they may misconstrue and kind of what you bring to the table as a naturopathic doctor. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, obviously it's very varied depending on what people have available to them and based on different states as we have different licensure slash registration status in so many different states. And I think you're right that people that are really committed to naturopathic medicine, patients and practitioners, um, usually it's because they've experienced it themselves. And once you experience that and understand that relationship, um, then you you kind of always implement that into your life and have a different understanding. So I think it varies from people that think we are probably um, kind of misconstruing us with a lay naturopath where you know, we're just adding in some herbal teas or something to, to be very general um, and kind of general wellness, as opposed to who we really are. Um, a lot of people don't still don't understand that we have four years of training at a doctorate level and do all of the pre-medical courses as well. So I think there is still a lot of people that, that don't fully understand that. I worked um, my first year out in Georgia, which is unlicensed. And it was interesting because there were also a lot of naturopaths there and they're also very helpful for people and what they're looking for. So it is very confusing to the public of, well, what's the naturopath versus a naturopathic doctor? Like, why are we, you know, what's the difference? So I think we're at a place where that's really important, especially because now we are, we're primary care providers and we can offer so much. I think it's also confusing as to what's the difference between us and functional medicine. And some people think that like we don't do functional medicine when in reality, a lot of the functional medicine training and some of the doctors that are on that board and everything are NDs. Um, So I think that what we can offer is so huge because for a lot of people, um, we can be their primary care provider, or we can also play the quarterback where we may be being their primary care provider, but we're also giving them this whole new spectrum of specialty tests or things that they haven't considered. And we are helping communicate with their rheumatologist or their infectious disease doctor. Um, A lot of NDs that I know, including myself, spend so much time providing their patients with PubMed articles to take to their doctors so that they can understand how much we use evidence-based medicine, uh, where our ideas for certain supplements are coming, or how functional medicine is progressing. Um, So we play so much of a patient advocate along with a primary care provider or, um, you know, a specialist. So yeah, we kind of wear a lot of different hats, I would say. I think that's a good point how you bring up um, the research side of this, because I know that with especially EBV and mono, um, it changes 
there's recent changes, you know, each year there's new changes, um, testing and et cetera. And you really have to be on your game. And, um, I'm sure you would, you probably could speak to this a little bit more of like you needing to stay up on the research as well with just what you're giving as treatment options and what are the new findings as well. So all of this being said, can you tell us a little bit about EBV, what it stands for? Um, and I know that uh, EBV and mono are, you know, well-known things in the public, or at least mono is. Um, and usually I always hear high school students getting mono. So how does this kind of lead into autoimmunity? Yeah, so EBV stands for Epstein-Barr virus, which is a really common virus. It's from the herpes family of viruses. And so what people oftentimes don't realize is that pretty much all of us get exposed to it. Um, usually, I've seen different sources say greater than 90%. I've some, seen some say greater than 95%. But basically, at some point in our lives, we're most likely exposed or infected with it. And a lot of times, the first time that we are exposed to it, it's known as mono or mononucleosis um, or the kissing disease because um, it really settles in the salivary glands. And that's how it's um, transmitted is through bodily fluids and um, a lot through saliva. And usually the first time that you get it, it's, it, you know, some people say, well, I never had mono. So why are you concerned about reactivated EBV or EBV? And a lot of people don't even know the first time that they got it because at that point in time, their immune systems were working very well, or they might've gotten it and just thought that they had a cold or the flu. Um, usually the first time it presents you, just have malaise, feel fatigued. Um, for, for some people, it is more severe and they'll have a very sore throat. They'll have a low-grade fever. The fatigue will be more debilitating. They may have splenomegaly where their spleen is swollen. Um, in some cases, some people report a rash. Um, it kind of depends on the person, but usually it conventionally and even kind of still it's taught that you get it once and then you get better and it's self-limiting and you rest and drink fluids and then you're all better. Um, but what we are seeing is that that's not what happens all the time. And because it's from the herpes family. So if you think about um, canker sores or cold sores with HSV one um, during times of stress, you, you break out, you have this really painful blister type thing and you're like, what's going on? Oh, well, that's from a virus. Um, and so this family doesn't just go away. Viruses stay in our body and it goes into what we call a latent state, which means the virus is kind of like sleeping. And if the environment is right, it will turn back on to where it's replicating. And when that happens, I talk of, I kind of call it like a light switch. It's like it turns back on, the virus starts replicating, and then we're turning on all these pathways that lead to increased inflammation and things that contribute to autoimmune conditions. But the thing that I always like to emphasize, and um, when I started, you know, talking more about Epstein-Barr virus and diving more into it, it was about the same time that medical medium was really, really popular. And 
does a great job of um, highlighting this virus, but he kind of has a philosophy that it causes all the problems. And what I like to highlight is that really what's important is to understand what change in the body or the environment to cause the virus to Mm -hmm. start. Yeah. Yeah. On your um, Instagram and different areas of your blog, um, you have like reactivation triggers. So stress, um, not sleeping, um, other types of stressors. Could you go through some of those? Yeah, definitely. So stress is probably the most commonly reported one that I see, uh, whether it's, you know, a new job or a stressful relationship, or I mean, it could just be the year that we just had. Um, That's very common. And I think what people what people don't understand is that emotional stress really does lead to physical changes in the body and the bio. Mm-hmm. So when I say stress, it's like anything that's leading to those chemical changes in the body and that's causing reactive oxygen species, um, which is also known as oxidative stress. Um, but so emotional stress is a big one. Um, then we have a lot of environmental factors that are triggers and the most common one that I see when people have really, really robust cases of EBV reactivation and they just really, especially report a lot of brain fog is mold exposure. Mm-hmm. And um, Dr. Jill Krista has a phenomenal book on mold exposure and, and helping with that. And she talks about how mold causes the immune system to forget that you have seen that virus before and that you know how to handle it. Yeah. Interesting. It's more of an empowering stance for sure. And I think a lot of these different stressors, well, I'm not sure, but would these, would this look or view on the stressors that you're presenting today? Is that the more naturopathic approach or would the conventional approach agree with that? Or is there even talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that conventionally doctors, doctors that, you know, understand that the virus can reactivate most. So conventional standard wise, and just kind of how pathology is taught, it still is kind of like, oh, you get this once it's very odd if it reactivates. But I do think that doctors, when they see a lab and they see that it has reactivated, that they are more in tune to say, something something's going on something with this person's immune system because we wouldn't mm. expect that to happen mm-hmm. so I think that that is growing and that's certainly something um you know that we that we work for with patients doctors to understand that so that we can have better understanding so I do think they understand that you know well something must be going on with the immune system for this to be happening mm-hmm are you seeing an increase in these reactivations of EBV? Because I mean, times are times are pretty stressful, you know. Um, and I wonder, because of all this stress, I'm sure people's immune systems aren't really keeping things in check and allowing things to reactivate. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, because there's a couple things that I wonder about this. And the first is, I just wonder how many people are walking around with it reactivating or walking around with chronic fatigue and not feeling very well. And just that's become their normal one. They're kind of used to it. Yeah. And it, there's more awareness now to, hey, 
this isn't this isn't normal to feel this tired. This isn't normal to have brain fog. Um, but I do think that there's a few factors given this last year that are really going to play a role. Um, the first is just being inside more. So every building, every building has its own little microbiome, microflora. It's not clean, fresh air. <laughs> There's yeah. a chance that you're exposed to mold. Yeah. Um, and most buildings have some. Now, it, whether or not it's causing health problems is a, is a different thing. But still, being inside more, not having fresh air is going to uh, automatically make you kind of have some more exposures um, than we're used to. Then there's the obvious stress of um, fear that has happened and things like that. Uh, given the current state of the pandemic. Um, and then the other thing is that people are spending a lot of time on computer screens and Zoom meetings. And so not only are they having less human interaction, which there's there's studies showing like human interaction is a part of your immune function, um, but also depending on how sensitive they are to EMF exposure from their computer, from their cell phone each day. Um, and then if they're also getting outside less, that's going to cause them to not be able to reset as well. And then all of those things are also going to play into their nervous system and being in a more fight or flight state, which is going to set them up to not be regulating their immune system in an optimal state. So I think all of those things combined are definitely going to cause us to see more reactivations um, and cause us kind of more fatigue in general. Yeah. I, I think after all of that, it's just, I can feel the weight of all of that right now, just from being inside and having to be on zoom and it, it's so hard to just, you know, let go of that, that stress of just knowing that we're kind of in a stuck position right now without much control. Um, yeah. So as far as lab testing and figuring out if you do have maybe an acute, a chronic or a reactivated state, what are the traditional conventional labs and then what differs, um, like the naturopathic labs? Yeah, so really um, we can run a standard panel through LabCorp or Quest. Um, I think that LabCorp does a better job giving you quantitative numbers, whereas Quest will sometimes just tell you if you're out of range or not, but it won't give you the actual number that you're at. Um, so I look for viral capsule antigen IgM. Um, that is the acute response. Our IgM antibodies are the first responders. So typically that is supposed to only be active one time, the first time that you respond to it. And I used to teach to that. And then I had somebody <laughs> message me and send me their labs and was like, well, I had it 10 years ago and look, here's my labs and it's positive again. And I was like, oh, well, I guess more to learn. Um, about immunology. And I'm really curious if that person had also had a mold exposure or something that caused it to forget that first thing. So, so we say it should be this way, but there are exceptions. Um, so the other thing that we look at for especially growth reactivation, um, it's known as early antigen uh, viral capsid IgG. And this is an early antigen. It usually is positive 
um, three to six months for three to six months after reactivation. So if you have that positive, it's very helpful in saying, okay, you most likely recently reactivated. Um, very helpful. And then we have uh, nuclear antigen IgG and viral capsid antigen IgG, and these are more so to be looked at as like, okay, if this is positive still, it could just mean that you've had this in the past if everything else is negative. Mm -hmm. But is what happen um, is that a lot of times I see these numbers 10 to 100 times the upper limit of normal. And if wow. that's what's happening and the patient is presenting with symptoms of chronic fatigue, brain fog, um, sometimes they have um, swollen lymph nodes that are kind of cyclically appearing, then to me, that's saying, well, you might be in a chronic reactivated state. And that's where it gets a little bit hairy in how you diagnose and, and things like that. Um, so really, I mean, any that, that's not like a functional lab. That's just a standard lab panel um, that doctors can order. And then from a naturopathic perspective, that's when you know, I think t history taking is the most important thing is, okay, what has happened in the last year? What were the 10 years like before you were ill? Um, is this a long-term thing where you led a stressful life or we're eating quickly on the go? And so we have intestinal permeability and things like that, that are that have depleted your immune response and that's what's not allowing you to clear this virus or is this something more acute where you know you had a mold exposure or you recently had a stressful event so from there we're able to um, implement in some functional tests like i typically use um, if i'm concerned about mold a great plains mycotoxins test or we can use a stool test um, or an organic acids test to kind of start to see what else is going on from that's contributing to it? So you were saying um, if the IgM is high again, that there could have been um, like a mold trigger or something like that, another infection? Yeah, something. Okay. So mold is one of the unique things that can cause the B cells to forget that they have seen the virus. So that was my kind of thought when I saw that happen again. But there could be other, you know, other immune disruptors um, or if they have something going on with their immune system response. And I think it also highlights that we have a lot to learn about the immune system. Yeah, still. definitely. So conventionally, do they also run these labs or is it typically not? I have some, some doctors do and some doctors don't. Um, functional medicine doctors are usually really open to it. And other doctors usually is what happens is they, the patient is asking them or has said, hey, I read this book or I listened to this podcast or whatever. And I think that this is what is going on with me. Will you run these labs? Um, but some doctors are more likely to run them than other. It really just depends on their clinic clinical background and what they've been exposed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sense. Okay. So I think we have a good grip on the lab testing. And so what would, what is the standard of care then? And then I'll have Stephanie ask you about the naturopathic, but what is the standard of care um, for just, if you just went to your doctor and you ran these labs and then they came out positive, 
what would they do for you? Yeah. So if the early antigen came back positive and it was a reactivation, then they might consider um, pharmaceutical antivirals, like acyclovir or something of that nature. If just the IgM and it was supposedly the first time that they had it, then would probably consider it self-limiting and say, go home, rest. If it was a very severe case, then they might still consider the pharmaceuticals. Um, naturopathically, um, I think what we learn first is so many amazing antiviral herbs um, that can be very helpful and that you can stay on kind of longer term than, for example, the, the pharmaceutical um, depending on what, what you are picking. We have lemon balm, we have lamation, we have licorice. We have a lot of L's for, yeah. uh, for EBV. So we, so we have that where we have this other form of what I call EBV killers. Um, and, but then the other thing that we have in naturopathic medicine and something that I think that we don't realize how powerful is until, until we really use it is all the antioxidants that we learn about, um, things like glutathione and curcumin and resveratrol, um, EBV pushes on pathways like the JAK-STAT pathway and the NF-kappa B pathway. And these are the pathways that lead to autoimmune conditions, cancers. And so we have the ability to not only say, hey, we're working on giving you something antiviral to, to put this back under control, because you're not actually, I mean, you can never just kill all of EBV and get rid of it completely. Um, but we can be giving you things that are also going to counteract those pathways that it's pushing on. So we can be thinking um, in a proactive way of also preventing long-term chronic illness while you're, while you're going through this and while we're getting to the bottom. And then on top of that, we're going to be being detectives and saying, okay, why did this, if it's a reactivation, why did it happen in the first place? Is there something um, with your gastrointestinal health? Is there something with your thyroid? Are you being exposed to heavy metals or mold? Do you have parasites um, so that we can prevent it from happening again? Because a lot of people that I've worked with have had it reactivate off and on for 10 to 20 years. And they, they've just learned like, oh, that's just what happens. I just have to deal with it. Um, but having it reactivate or having what some people call flare-ups, that's, that's a sign that those pathways that are more likely to lead to chronic illness are being turned on. And we need to prevent that so that we don't have those develop. Mm -hmm. So you're treating both the activated virus and you're working on the root cause preventative piece at the same time. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, do you have a go-to antiviral for this case? Is there one you particularly like? You herbally? Yeah, herbally. I like to use a blend. Um, it depends because if somebody does have an autoimmune picture, then we're going to want to use less stimulating herbs and more mm. tonifying herbs. So there's a lot of viral blends out there that have echinacea in them. And usually it's just a little bit of echinacea. So if somebody, if they're in a more acute setting, 
or something like that, then that's okay. But if they already have um, signs of inflammation, like they have a high CRP or they already have an autoimmune condition, then I'm, I look more for um, things that are more tonifying. Another helpful herb is astragalus because it does have some antiviral properties and it's also going to be tonifying to the adrenals. It's very cooling. It's not going to rev things up. And it has been shown to support natural killer cells, which mm. are responsible for responding to viruses. So it depends um, what else is going on with the patient and if this is a first time reactivation or something they've been dealing with for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're finding that um, you know, a lot of the, our botanical herbs are becoming, well, they're really complex, first of all, and then a lot of the constituents are becoming um, pharmaceutical drugs. So I think that, I think just knowing that um, helps people understand that um, botanical herbs and naturopathic treatments are, they're not far off from just the conventional drug um, with their chemistry and everything. I did want to talk to you about, so the toxic trio, and I'm not sure if like you have coined this term or if this is like a thing, but it's a combination of EBV, lime, and mold. Yeah. So when I started diving into EBV, um, I, well, I've had, when I figured out that it was EBV that was reactivating me, I went, oh my gosh, I've been dealing with this for like five years now and miserable and didn't realize what was happening. And at first I was just like all about EBV. And then I realized, no, you were exposed to toxic mold. Um, And then whether or not I had Lyme is, is debatable. Um, (laughs) But I saw so many patients. um, I was seeing a lot of Lyme patients at the time and a lot of them had mold and had EBV. And so mold and Lyme. So a lot of people that are exposed to mold will then show signs of Lyme and be tested and, and we see, Oh, okay. Lyme. So mold just really wreaks havoc on the immune system and people that may have had a spirochete infection or been exposed and may have been handling it okay in their body after they've been exposed to mold, they can't do that anymore. And then, and then it will become apparent that they're also dealing with that. And then if you have mold or if you have Lyme or if you have both, it's more likely than not that EBV is reactivating um, because of the both of those. I mean, we've already kind of talked about how mold makes it so easy for EBV to reactivate. And Lyme is the same thing. It's so if, if that is something that is taking a role in your body and causing problems, your immune system is experiencing a lot of activity. You're having a lot of oxidative stress from that infection. And it's very likely that if you've been exposed to EBV, that it will reactivate and most people have been. So yeah. those three are just, I mean, they go together. Just common. All yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was trying to ask. So I know a few people who've had mono, and I feel like that's probably really common. And it it they just kind of say, you know, it it kind of just destroyed my life. Like um, it changed the way my life is, and you know that little period of time of that chronic fatigue, and then later on all of the side effects. And I know that um, you've talked a lot about like 
you know, letting go of maybe just the fear of becoming more ill and kind of being more empowered. Um, because I know that when you're not feeling well, it's really hard to want to exercise and eat right and take the supplements and try to keep going without constantly being reminded every single day that like you don't feel good and you wish your health was in a better space. So, um, I was kind of curious on, um, just how, um, EBV and hormones play a role. So most people, when they have EBV or they've had it for a while and they are talking to me about hormones, I see a couple of different patterns happen and usually they either feel worse or what they call a flare up around ovulation um, or well for, for women anyway, around ovulation or right before their menses. And in men, a lot of times I see just low testosterone and when I first was looking at it, I was like, what's, you know, what's going on with this? Um, and really most commonly it's low hormones across the board from the body chronically responding to this infection. The body is basically just saying, Hey, it's not a good time to reproduce right now. You have other things to deal with. And so we see those systems kind of just turn off. Now there's other, I do think that there's also specific biochemical things happening where because of levels of inflammation that the way that the body um, processes pregnenolone and those hormones and is, I, I think that those signals kind of get blocked by inflammation markers. And there's some research that dives into that, but it's not quite as crystal clear as I would, as I would like it to be. Um, and, and so the, the body a lot of times has low hormones. And so is what we'll see with women sometimes is around ovulation, their hormones are spiking, um, but they still, they might have low hormones, but they, they might still also be out of balance. So they might still be estrogen dominant, even with low hormones. And so you are having estrogen dominant symptoms, mm -hmm. but then you're also low estrogen and estrogen interacts with immune receptors. So your immune system drops during that time. So then you are having a flare up plus your hormone pictures. Um, and then right before the menses is really common because again, all hormone levels are dropping. And like I said, the estrogen plays into immune function. So with some patients, if that's happening a lot, or even after we are improving, we will cycle antiviral herbs with their menses so that they have more immune support when they're going through that, but they're not having to take them all the time to help prevent those flare-ups and things like that from happening. Um, a lot of women have also um, worked on, you know, fertility because they have these low hormones and things like that. And so getting EBV into a latent state can be a really important part of them reaching optimal fertility and feeling well during pregnancy and postpartum, because there's a lot of times that the stress of childbirth and then being sleep deprived after having the baby um, can also trigger a reactivation. Um, so it definitely, it definitely plays a role. And for a lot of women, when, 
when they say they have like the period flu or or whatnot, sometimes there's there's a virus or something at play and it's not just hormones and, and those are magnifying each other. And so just so I understand, um, you can have an estrogen dominant picture, but your labs will show low hormone levels. Yeah. So what's really important with estrogen and progesterone is their ratio. So you might be in low levels of estrogen and progesterone, but it's still not a one-to-one ratio of estrogen and progesterone. So you still are technically estrogen dominant as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So say you do like a hormone panel or you do a Dutch test and you see that estrogen and progesterone are low. But then if you look at, if you compare that to the FSH and the LH, and look at the ratio, you usually want estrogen to progesterone ratio about one to one. Well, let's say estrogen, even though it's low, is still five to one to progesterone. You're going to be dealing with low hormones across the board and lower immune function, but then you also have this estrogen dominant picture. So it can be misleading and people can think they just are having estrogen dominance, but really they actually have low hormones and they actually have a viral infection that is also playing into it. It's just like natural, like the body is like, Hey, you have a chronic viral infection. So now is not a good time to make a baby or produce hormones. So the the body just doesn't do that as much. Um, It could also be thyroid related that, you know, your pituitary is not talking as well to your thyroid, it's not talking as well to your ovaries, um, especially if there's mold exposure um, and oxidative stress plays into that as well. And then there is some literature showing how inflammation markers just make those pathways less likely to be turned on and less likely to successfully make those hormones. Mm-hmm. So that kind of ties into the Hashimoto's picture that can be activated with EBV too, right? Yeah, we do see a very common correlation with um, EBV and Hashimoto's. And a lot of people after being diagnosed with Hashimoto's then go, oh, I also have EBV. Mm-hmm. Is it, and it's because um, virus is interfering with the communication of all these glands and altering them with the inflammatory picture? So anytime you have a chronic virus, I mean, even if you just have the flu, it's a burden to your, to your thyroid. So some people have even had like a sluggish thyroid after, after any viral infection. Um, it's thought that EBV based on the transcription factors that it turns on and the pathways that it presses on can lead to antibodies to the thyroid. And when we look at from, um, an environmental picture, um, if there's mold with the EBV, mold is very, very hard on your pituitary. And we know that your pituitary is talking to your thyroid, is talking to your ovaries. Um, so I would say mold is really interfering with that signaling process. And sometimes with Hashimoto's, we find the EBV, but we don't take it a step further to see if there's mold. And that can actually mm. be something that has caused the EBV to turn on and that is causing a lot of that a lot right. of those problems. Yeah. And if you do, th- I liked that, how you sat at the flu and just, if, you, if you're sick, you're just run down. And so you're, you're just naturally going to be slower. Your metabolism will be slower. Um, just as a natural process of being run down. Um, and we, we did kind of see 
uh, some links they have found with gastric cancer, and the other one was um, Burkitt's lymphoma. And it the study basically said um, it has a combination of environmental factors, like you've already kind of said, and um, that more studies need to be done, obviously. Um, would you kind of agree with that, that it's really multifactorial, like we've already discussed in that? Yeah, so I think I'm trying to think of when the research article was published that basically said that Epstein-Barr virus was correlated to seven different autoimmune conditions, but that was not that long ago. And, um, you know, there was a lot of fear because at the same time they were talking about cancers and there's multiple cancers that it's related to as well. So there was a lot of fear and people are like, so if you get EBV, you're going to get autoimmune condition or you're going to get cancer. Yeah. Um, and the other thing with EBV is there are different strains with like with any virus. Um, so what we've been talking about and what is most common is that it is affecting B cells and T cells. Um, there are some more aggressive strains that will lead to cancer really quickly. Um, but this with this just like chronic reactivation and what is most common that we're talking about it really is a question of did the virus cause this or is it just part of this? And to me, to me, it's like, yes, the, so to me, there was already something going on that was setting that person up to have a chronic illness. And that most likely spurred EBV to be turned on. And once you turn that light switch on, it's like, pouring gasoline on a flame because yeah. now you're just adding to inflammation. You're turning those pathways on. So it kind of just magnifies everything that's happening. So is it a contributor? Yes. Is it the only thing? Most likely not. There's most likely environmental exposures, pesticides. I mean, yeah, pesticides um, that we see are causing these things as well, but it definitely is a factor and something that, that we want to deal with. But if we are so focused on that pesky virus and we forget about everything else chances are you're not you're not going to get that person feeling better and you're not going to prevent um cancer or autoimmune conditions down the road so um it'll be interesting to see how we how we continue to study that relationship but i do think it's multi-factored mm -hmm. Yeah, what i'm getting from this talk is that we're honestly all very susceptible to um, EBV reactivation or even like exposure and um, just having our immune systems not keep things in check. But I know that there is a lot we could do to regulate our immune system naturally. Can you give our listeners a couple of tips that they can do at home or yeah, any sort of supplements that are really effective where they could talk to their doctor about them? Yeah. So um, I think right now it's really important to emphasize stress reduction um, mm -hmm. and movement. So especially with EBV or chronic fatigue, people don't feel good. And so the last thing they're going to do is exercise. But then when they exercise less, they're getting less blood flow, less immune cells to different parts of their body, and then they're getting more tired. This sedentary lifestyle is something that I think often is what is contributing to things like POTS. Um, and so a lot of times it's like, hey, even if it's just 10 minutes and you're doing, um, I like to tell people to do yoga with Adrian at home. Mm -hmm. 
minutes each day, pretty soon you'll be able to do 15 minutes and then you'll be able to do 20, whatever it is, we have to keep moving because the other thing is, um, I remember I was talking to Dr. Tina Moore about this because she was really big on muscle as medicine. Yeah. The, the blood and when you're just like sitting there, like it's like this pond, it's not moving and there's all these bugs in it. Mm-hmm. And so you got to got to get it moving you got to get that blood flow so you can get those immune cells and lymph I mean EBV is very associated with lymph nodes and so we have to keep that lymph moving um so if people have access to a sauna at their gym or an infrared sauna and we can get you sweating um if you can just start with 10 minutes of yoga start walking whatever it is you have to start moving um, even if it's going and having like physical therapy done where somebody is, is helping you move, if you're, you know, at a place where it's really not possible or your family member is giving you, um, just like massages to get tissue moving, but we have to get that movement back. Um, and food. So uh, the biggest thing is antioxidants with EBV because it's going to be causing oxidative stress. And your body is going to need that. And so, you know, when I think about like the, the ideal diet or, or whatnot, I, I honestly just think like, why not just an autoimmune diet? Like what Terry Walls does where you're getting seven to nine servings of vegetables each day. Um, an anti-inflammatory diet is by far one of the top things that most everybody agrees on that is crucial for healing from EBV. Mm-hmm. Um, so the more vegetables, the more colors, the better. And it seems it seems like so boring and basic, but it really makes a big deal. Um, and then supplement-wise, I always suggest talking to your doctor about curcumin and resveratrol because it does have those anti-inflammatory components for those pathways. Um, and then as far as like antivirals go, there's there's such a great spectrum of herbs with that too. And so that's helpful to have on hand. And I recommend just talking to your doctor about like what, what should be in a blend for that. Um, and then optimal gut health, right? So we need, we need that to be good. Um, so if you're not having regular bowel movements each day and you, or you have gas and bloating and you've had it for years and you just think that that's like normal, you know, dive into that, get it figured out. Because if you have SIBO or you have dysbiotic bacteria um, or you have candida in your gut and that um, can be a huge reason that you're not able to overcome the virus. And again, those antioxidants that we're talking about though will help your gut health because it will give you lots of prebiotics um, that are food for your good gut bugs. So all those little things that you do help so much. And with stress reduction, um, the yoga is great as well. There's actually a research article that says that yoga can help support natural killer cells. So it's like mm-hmm. my go-to um, exercise for, for EBV because, I mean, we're literally helping you with the arm of your immune system that helps address viruses. But then it's also going to activate that parasympathetic state and get you out of that um, sympathetic state. It, and it also is building muscle. So yoga is great because it, I mean, it uses a lot of different isometric contractions. So you're going to be building muscle, which the more we learn about muscle, the more we see how that's good for immune health and anti-aging and really reducing oxidative stress as well. 
and making tissue that's less likely to be, you know, just something that the virus can, can be thriving in. Yeah. And just going off the yoga part, I, um, in undergrad, I had to do, uh, or I wanted to do like an elective and I did yoga and it was three days a week and you had to wake up kind of early to do the class. And I remember that I hated going, that it was the worst. And, and I never really did yoga that consistently in my whole life. And after doing that for a whole semester, so, you know, 12 weeks or so, um, I noticed significant changes in a lot of my symptoms and, um, it's because it's activating your, yourself to relax and reduce that stress. And that, just like you were saying that parasympathetic response, which is huge, um, especially when you're under stress and mono is definitely stressful and that can definitely help. And yoga with Adrian, you can do that at home. So it's even better. Um, and just to kind of wrap it up, but we do want to know what is next for you, Dr. Holland, and where are you going with your career? <laughs> yeah, well, um, 2020 had interesting plans with that. I was, um, so right now I am a, a virtual clinic and we have um, we have another provider that's that's in Arizona. So it's kind of cool how you know, we've really tapped into the what's happening virtually and just trying to get naturopathic medicine, especially um, specialty in mold, EBV, things like that, more available to people. Um, I'm working on a membership platform where we will have kind of a community where, you know, we'll have monthly things where we're diving into this and specific meal plans and things like that happening so that we can also reach more people. Um, and it'll be interesting to see um, how long I'm in Alaska for, <laughs> um, because, um, it, it won't be, we won't be here permanently, but we'll probably be here for a little bit. Um, and I'm working on some writing and things, but I haven't put a specific timeline on it because yeah, deadlines are hard. Um, yeah. <laughs> hopefully more podcasts. Um, but really my goal is to totally reach as many people as possible with EBV of step one to empower them and to stop the fear of the virus and not that not to discount it or say it's not something to be concerned about or serious because I've had it and it's definitely something to be concerned about it's not fun um, but to really empower us and get people to be the best that they can be because when you are healthy that affects your family, that affects your community, that affects your city, that affects your state, and it's a ripple effect. And I think that, especially with what's happening right now, that we really, really need to just get through to people on how to build resilient health so that they're not reactivating or things like that. So definitely looking at ways to reach more people in regards to EDV and how they can be um, strong in their own health to prevent it. Wow. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Holland, and sharing your story. For all of our listeners, um, you can find Dr. Holland online at www.drcaseyholland.com. And that is D-R-K-E-S-E-Y-H-O-L-L-A-N-D.com or on Instagram at Dr. Casey Holland. And before we close the show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, comment, rate, review, and most of all, share with someone you know. 
right, well, it's wonderful meeting you guys and I can't wait for you guys to graduate and have new colleagues. It's going to be awesome. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Lee. Bye. Bye.